Well, we are in the book of Judges, and we are in this section, as we've been going through, talking about the various judges, or a word that could be synonymous with that would be a leader that was raised up in a time of uh, history in Israel where God would, uh, well, the people would go off into idolatry. That's kind of how the book of Judges opens up, that they were doing what was right in their own eyes, not necessarily following the Lord. And they went off into sin, and that led to idolatry and into captivity uh, when the nations around them came and began to plague them by enslaving them and taking their crops and uh, doing them harm and killing them, all kinds of things. And then the people would cry out, and they would, God would raise up a leader, raise up a judge. And as we've been going down through this passage or these passages, we've gone through several uh, various judges. We talked about Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah, and we spent a lot of time on Gideon. We ended last week talking about Gideon, and we would call them the the major judges, right? Major only because there's a lot written about them, or a lot more, and they also were judges that were leaders that re- that led victorious military conquests. Now you come to other judges, and they're really minor judges, and minor and not meaning they're lesser important. Uh, but rather, there's less about them, not necessarily less known about them. Today, we're going to look at one, but uh, two of them. But they lived in times of peace. And they were sort of those stabilizers in the society during their time. And I don't think they're any less important than the other judges in that. And so those you read of... Of course, the minor judges, Shamgar is one of them, actually, in Judges 3.31, just a little bit about uh, him. Then Tola and Jr. we're going to talk about them. And then there's Iz- Ibzan and Elon and Abdon, and they are coming up in uh, future, well, we'll cover some of it in future messages. But they would be called the minor judges. And I, the title of today's message is Unsung Heroes, because I think... They are kind of the unsung hero. And I thought it's kind of apt that here we are on our Labor Day weekend. Labor Day was set aside to commemorate laborers. And I think of the unsung laborers that are out there doing their job day in and day out. And nobody notices them really uh, because they don't stand out. And they aren't leading entire you know military victories or they're not some leader of the world. But they are the ones that make it, make it happen. And we celebrate Labor Day in sort of that, you know, backdrop and all that. But I thought today we're going to talk about some unsung laborers, some unsung heroes. And they are from Judges chapter 10 here. We're going to read down through these five verses. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, and the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, And he dwelt in Shamir, in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel twenty-three years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel twenty-two years. Now he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys. They also had thirty towns, which are called Havoth-Jair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cayman. Lord, we are grateful for your word, every single bit of it. And we are thankful, O Lord, for who you are and what you do. 
And we just ask now that you would, you would teach us as only you can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There we go. We come to uh, this section and we see a little bit about, if you want the outline here, is these unsung heroes. We're going to start with, first of all, the mess that they inherited. We're introduced to these two people and two men. And they encompassed a whole generation in their leadership. And it was a time of peace in the land. But it wasn't so in the years that led up to them being installed as judges. Well, you read in actually in chapter 9 quite a mess that takes place. And we learn a little bit about uh, that mess. And in verse 1 of chapter 10 it says, After Abimelech. And all the words in the Bible are important. And especially when you're starting here in the new paragraph, a new chapter, you have this starting off saying, after somebody, after Abimelech. Well, who was Abimelech? Abimelech was one of the sons of uh, Gideon. And last week we ended sort of on the life of Gideon, and we ended with Gideon really not doing that great towards the end of his life. Remember, he took many women, many wives and concubines. He had lots of sons. And... Um, one of those sons was Abimelech. And Abimelech determined in uh, the end of chapter 8 that he was going to be the conqueror of Israel. And he wanted to be the next leader. And he just took that right, probably because his father had been a leader. And he just said, I'm going to do that as well. And he convinces his mother's people, the Shechemites, to support him in his uh, conquest of becoming king. And that's how that goes. But, of course, there were people that were set against him. And we read a little bit about that. <clears throat> and so he decided, and again, you follow the money in politics, and you kind of see the motives that are behind it. In the Judges chapter 9, verse 4, it says this, So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bareth, and from which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Now, anytime you're the leader of worthless and reckless men, uh, that says a lot about your character. And Abimelech was, was nothing more than a worthless and a reckless man as well. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers. 69 of them killed them. The 70 sons of Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. So one son survives out of all those sons. I say, what a tragedy in the, in the household of Gideon. He thought he had all these descendants. Well, guess what? One son rises up to kill uh, these in doing that. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. And... Uh, you read of that, and I want to make sure. But it says a certain woman dropped an up. Oh, this is in Judges 9, the end of Abimelech. I jumped ahead there. My verses weren't showing up on my iPad. They are now. But uh, what you have is this basically civil war that breaks out, and, and it's, a, it's a terrible time. It's a mess. The political climate was a disaster. There was no peace. And it was all self-inflicted in the country. It wasn't something from the enemy without. It was from the enemy within. And all that takes place. In the end of chapter 9, you have the demise of Abimelech. And 
He chose to walk too close to a wall, and a woman who was up on the wall took a millstone, and a piece of a millstone, she would have been hard to press to lift a whole millstone, uh, but she took a piece of a millstone and she dropped it on his head. Ouch. And it says that, but a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Yeah, ouch for sure. And the Bible goes on to say this, that then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, a woman killed me. So his young man thrust him through and he died. Not the greatest way to go out, that's for sure. Very tragic event. This is, albeit a bad leader, he was the leader in the nation. And he's taken out by a piece of a millstone. And I say that because you end up with um, Abimelech uh, being killed. And this mess is inherited, really, by the next judges, which we already just read about in chapter 1 or verse 1. And Abimelech, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola. And we're going to talk a little bit about Tola and also Tola's successor from there and learn a little bit more about those. But I want to say this, that sometimes you end up inheriting a mess. And it's not your fault that you ended up in that situation, but that's the, the mess that's in front of you. Sometimes it's a, a family situation that you had nothing to do with, but it's now on your plate. Sometimes it's a, an employment thing, and now you've got to pick up the pieces over some disaster that the previous worker did or a previous boss or something like that. And sometimes it's also it's sort of that part of being a leader is that you get what you get when you step into leadership. And we find that is the case with Tola. He inherits quite a mess. And yet we find that he ends up doing a good job with it. And I think he's one of these unsung heroes because he's able to take a mess and make something out of it and bring peace back to a nation, which is really why that God raised up those judges. And I want to say a couple things about that because sometimes when we look around and we say things are really bad, and I think if you look around in our nation today, I'd say things are really bad. There's still some good things out there and some good people, but there's a lot of just bad and you could dwell on that, couldn't you? And I'm reminded that God always has a remnant. When it looked darkest for Israel and the nation was divided and the, the families were divided and everything was in turmoil and there was murder on every side, God still had a faithful remnant. He's like that. In the days of Elijah, that was the case too. Elijah the prophet thought he was the last one. He thought there was nobody else out there that hadn't bowed back down to Baal. And God kind of brings back the curtain a little bit and says, Oh yeah, guess what? And he gives him some revelation. It says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. God said there's 7,000 people out there, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, stop feeling sorry for yourself, thinking you're alone. You're not alone. And my friends, sometimes we get feeling that way, don't we? Think, oh, it's a mess. I'm alone. I'm the last one. No, God still has his people out there. And know that that goes on. And that's the case throughout human history. That's the case from the garden all the way till now. 
there's always been a remnant of faithful people. Now, I would also say this, that serving God isn't easy, but it's always right. Um, you look around and it's less popular to be a Christian when, than when I first became a Christian. Now, I've been saved now as a believer uh, 35 years. I came to faith in Christ when I was 18. You can add up the years and figure out how old I am now. But you know what? When I first became a Christian, it wasn't necessarily popular with my friends. Popular, but Christianity in general in our society was very acceptable. You know, It was still a sort of a respected thing among people. I can remember even my friends who really had nothing to do with, with Christ and didn't want him in their life and all that, still had a measure of respect for the Lord and for things in some dealings. Not, and, and it's interesting. Now, I would say there's less and less in that in just 35 years. And we're living in a world now where it's more popular now to go after uh, Christians in particular and doing that. Um, and... and that's an ongoing thing. I could just list over and over again the things that are happening. But that's not what I'm here for today to look at the bad things. I'm here to remind you that we still have a, a God and Savior who are sovereign. They are in control. He is in control of our lives and the messes that we've made. And the reality is this. We've got to stop looking around. It's easy to look around and say, oh, there's that disappointment or there's that problem or there's this mess and just be discouraged. Instead, as the Christian, we are to look to Jesus, who is the one who will never lead you astray. He will never discourage you in anything. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then the next verse, look, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. The ultimate example is Jesus. And in the backdrop of this statement is the cross and the event that took place there, which was the crucifixion of Jesus. An innocent man who would go and die for the sins of the world. Think about that. If Jesus was to look around and not look past that, he would have seen that the crowd was angry and they were crawling out, crucify him. He would have seen his closest followers leaving. He would have seen the turmoil and the apparent victory of those over him. He would have seen all that, but he didn't. He endured the cross, the shame of it, and all of that because of the joy that was set before him. What that joy was, was beyond the cross. He would die, and three days later, after they buried him, he would be raised up, and he would be victorious over death and sin. And today, he is seated in the place of honor on the very throne of God. Think about that. Wow. We're to encourage ourselves with those thoughts. The next verse says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It is very discouraging in our world. There's not a lot of encouraging things. And I'm not making, making, trying to discourage you with that statement. The way to counter that 
is to look to Jesus who gives us joy in the midst of very trying times. He's like that. I'm thankful for that. In the book of Romans, we're called to, to stand up and to be strong in the hours that look the darkest. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, it says, And do this knowing that the time that now is, it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And Paul the Apostle encourages those in that chapter 13 of Romans to press on and take the battle to the enemy, but make sure that you're putting off the works of darkness. And we need more holy men and women of God who are willing to stand up in a very dry and dark world and be a testimony for Jesus Christ. And that leads me to our second point, the ministry that they performed. And we read of these two, it says, And after Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shemer in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shemer. After him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. And then you have the ministry of, the, of his years now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. That sounds like a strange thing. We'll talk about that. They also had 30 towns which are called Havath Jer to this day which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Canaan. You have in those five verses the summary of two lives and obviously not their whole life. Uh, you read a biography of somebody. Sometimes, you know, I've got. I'm reading a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, I'm actually listening to it on audiobook. And I think it's 22 hours of reading about a man's life, and it just covers the surface of it. Really, here you have five verses. How can you, you know, go beyond that? Right. Well, there's a lot that could be said about that. You know, I think these two men were the unsung heroes. They were the ones that came to really a time where there had been a mess and a disaster and they bring peace and security to a nation and they bring it back in line with what the Lord is doing. And I say that because of the fruit of it. We've all heard the term salt of the earth, you know. The other day I was on Facebook and you get these memories that pop up, you know. And uh, from 2015, August 26th of 2015, there was a man named Wayne Briggs, and Wayne uh, went home to be with the Lord. Probably most of you, if any of you have ever heard of Wayne Briggs, Wayne was the chairman of the board of directors at River of Life Bible Camp for probably decades. And he was one of the true servants of, of the Lord, that of the people I think of in my life, that I've met that are just true servants that do anything and will do anything for God. Wayne was one of those guys. Quiet. His leadership was always by servant leadership. He was a peacemaker. He was somebody that you never knew where you'd find him when you were working at camp. And sometimes you'd open the the bathroom stall and there's Wayne, not sitting on the stall, but with a plunger in hand, taking care of uh, somebody else's business, all that stuff. Yeah. 
And sometimes you'd go, and there he is repairing the, the washer, or he's painting up there uh, the edge of things up on the, the, the camp ground that needed everything needed to be painted regularly, you know, all those things. Or he had retired as a logger, and he was out there in his older years taking down trees and cutting them up and taking care of the brush and debris and all that. And Wayne was just that kind of guy. And I would say he was one of those that I'd call the salt of the earth, you know. You've heard that term. You've also heard the term, he's not worth his salt, right? Well, the guy like Abimelech wasn't worth his salt. By the way, that's an old word, the word salt, which is where we get our word salary. comes way back from the Roman days when people were paid in salt, because salt was a precious commodity. And they, uh, Solaris, their, their salary, that's how they received it. And if a guy got paid in salt and he wasn't worth anything, he wasn't worth his salt. When Jesus comes along in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 5, verse 13, you know what he says to believers? He says, you are the salt of the earth. May I also say that these two uh, judges that we're talking about today, they are, I would think, the salt of the earth as well and they are important they were men that held back sin for a whole generation and brought peace back to a nation the book of proverbs in chapter 14 verse 34 says this righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people may i throw this out for your thinking because if we're going to i'm sort of picking up on this idea of salt we're all familiar with salt. It's in everything, pretty much, right? I mean, you look at almost any label, and probably your toothpaste has salt in it. I don't know. But, you know, everything has salt. But salt has a marvelous effect on things. And, and one of the many things is it has a preserving effect, doesn't it? Salt is still used as a preservative. And pretty much if you salt something enough, it, it will stay, you know? And the book of Proverbs here says righteousness exalts a nation. Do you know that if you just even have a few righteous people, God holds back his judgment against that? I get that from Genesis chapter 19. Because when Abram, Abraham is, is interceding with God about the forthcoming judgment that was going to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah, he starts by saying, if there's 50 righteous men, will you spare the city? If there's 40, if there's 30, goes right down to 10. And God says, if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will spare it for the 10. There weren't 10 in Sodom and Gomorrah. Later, Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt. Had she been the spiritual salt of the earth and a light in a very dark world, I don't think she would have been turned into a pillar of salt. Salt has a preserving effect. It has a penetrating effect also, or a penetrating influence. You see, if believers are to be the salt of the earth, they are to go out and they are to penetrate this world that is outside. And there is something marvelous about Christians who are living for the Lord, and as they go out into the highways and byways and workplaces and homes and all of those things, that salting influence comes out. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's the death of Stephen. 
At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, you see early church being persecuted. They didn't go out voluntarily, so God allowed them to go out a different way. But when they went, look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. The very thing that the persecutors didn't want happening actually happened in greater numbers. Because now they didn't just have one preacher or 12, but now they had thousands that were going out and preaching the word. And that's the story of the church, isn't it? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I can tell you, the word of God is permeating the nations today. Salt has a purifying aspect also of its nature. And it is able to clean and it is able to um, keep something clean in that. In 2 Kings, in chapter 2, I won't read that, but Elisha, the successor to Elijah ends up cleaning the waters of Jericho with salt. And that which was poisoned now becomes good. A picture also of how salt, spiritual salt, has its cleansing effect and a purifying effect as that which was poisoned with sin could be made clean again. And throughout the Old Testament, you read of salt being used in the sacrifices, like in the book of Leviticus in chapter 2. And... By the way, when you come to the New Testament, the sacrifices aren't on an altar, but rather living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, right? To present your bodies a living sacrifice. We are to be the salt of the earth, aren't we? It also has, in many ways, a poisoning effect. You have too much salt, and you know you have problems. Sometimes some of you go there to the doctor and the doctor says you're, you're taking in too much salt. And your blood pressure is way too high or something like that. And salt can do that. In Judges chapter 9, the previous chapter, Abimelech actually took salt and he went to a city there and he sowed salt or had, had his people sow salt into the ground to prevent the crops from growing. I can just am reminded that we need to have a uh, salt in, in the spiritual sense has a poisoning effect really on sin as well in doing that. Um, a promoting influence. Salt creates a thirst, doesn't it? Have something salty and you want something to drink. So if you're going to be the salt of the earth, you need to be out there in such a way that you promote people wanting to drink from the same well you found water in, that spiritual well, which is Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 37, it says this, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You have the living water within you if you're one of his. Now, is your life an influence and such that you cause people to want to drink from that same well? I hope so. You are the salt of the earth. 
Lastly, and I know I have to wrap this up, the message they preached. The message they preached. And you uh, have these two judges, Tola and Jair. And interestingly enough, we again don't know a lot about them. Just know that they lived during these times of, uh, you know, a time when things were stable. For, for decades, it was like that. For more than a whole generation, would raised up under those two really ministries, if you want to say ministries of office in that case. But there's some lessons for us. And the first lesson is this, the lesson of their names. And in, um, back there in uh, verse 1, it says Tola. Tola. Now, I thought, well, that's an interesting word. Not a lot of people call Tola today. And the word Tola in Hebrew means crimson. And it actually is even deeper than that. It means crimson worm. Now, I don't know if you'd want to, I don't know if when he came out, somebody looked at him and said, man, that's a little red worm, you know, and called him Tola. But that's his name, the crimson worm. The word comes from the cocos worm, which actually is an insect, not a worm, but it actually bores into hardwoods and particular oak trees even. They bores into those. And the female of the species ends up producing a red dye that in ancient times was the primary source for the color crimson used in, in whatever. Now, you had to find a lot of these and make, to make any dyes worth it, but that's what they did. And so he indeed was this crimson worm. That's where the word comes from. The word is used elsewhere um, in, in Psalm 22, verse 6. When Jesus, this is a prophecy about Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. And this is from the perspective of Jesus on the cross. But I am a worm. Guess what word that is? Tola. And no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Jesus became our crimson worm. In John, uh, and in Isaiah, by the way, the book of Isaiah says, Though your sins be as scarlet, in Isaiah 118, says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, that's a different color, they shall be white as wool, though they be red like tola, crimson. They shall be as wool. And that's a promise of forgiveness of sin. Tola reminds us that there was going to be a redeemer who would come and somehow his blood would be shed for us that we might be saved. And Isaiah in chapter 1 talks about that one, but he's not identified Till much later in Isaiah 53, when we learn of the suffering Messiah. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness that we, when we see him, that there is no beauty that we should desire him. Look what it says. That I don't have anything in that one. I don't know. Go to the next one. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. Jesus, who on the cross hung as a worm, no man (laughs) bled out for us. His wounds heal our sin. We celebrate the Lord's table here this morning. And that grape juice pictures for us the blood of Christ that was shed so many years ago on the cross. And a solemn reminder that he is able to save us through his blood. Well, it's interesting also, it says that he was the uh, son of Pua. (laughs) That sounds like a funny name, but it means light. He was the son of light. Think about that. Here he is, the one who is identified as that. And, and, and by the way, Jesus also is the light of the world, isn't he? John eight twelve. And then you come to Jair, and that means enlightener. Jair, enlightener. Who is, in, in that way, um, a reminder of us that Jesus indeed is also the one who brings true light to the world. The son of righteousness, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and John 8, 12, the light of the world. And as I look at that, these men, we know a little bit about them from their names. We know a little bit about what they did or didn't do. They didn't lead the nation off into idolatry, but kept it stable and peaceful. And sometimes those are the ones that really are probably even more important Now it says that, you remember, this wealthy man, J.R., had 30 sons, and each one of them rode on how many donkeys? 30. Well, each one rode on one, I assume. 30 donkeys and 30 sons. And he said, that's different. Why would I even brag about that, you know? Well, the reality is this, that when people were at war, they used horses. When people were at peace or wanted to promote peace, they rode on donkeys. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the days before he would die on the cross, he rode in on a donkey. He came as the Prince of Peace. Offering himself a sacrifice to bring peace between man and God. He didn't come in on a conquering white horse. That's yet to come on his second return when he comes back to make war with those that have rejected him. Oh, don't be found in that crowd because you won't survive. He'll be king of kings and lord of lords, and he is king of kings and lord of lords, but every knee and every tongue, everybody will, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow to the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, and they will recognize that. But the first time he came, he came on a donkey riding an emblem of peace, really, The one who came to make peace for us. Do you know the peace of God in your life? Do you know that he's come as your savior and redeemer? Today could be the day that by faith you trust him. And you go from an enemy of God to at peace with God. And part of the family of God. 
These two judges, don't know a lot about them, but the little bit that we do know, I think, makes them in the category of unsung heroes. Lord, we are grateful for your word. Commit it to us again today. And may you do your work as it does not return void. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.